you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you would turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And I trust that, as Pastor Brandon said, that everyone <clears throat> had a good Christmas. Um, has, has everyone recovered? Has everybody recovered? I always find that the week after Christmas is a time of, uh, of, of uh, when, when everything seems to crash, right? Some of you probably get really restless and you need to get out and go do some things. Uh, I know for us, just all the anticipation, all the buildup, uh, and now it's all gone, right? My, my middle son, who is prone to be the emotional one in our family, um, was an emotional basket case whenever there's a buildup, and that buildup comes to an end. Uh, and, and for my sons this year, there was all sorts of buildup for Christmas. Between uh, all the time that we spent as a family talking about Advent and the buildup from the culture around us that, that builds up Christmas to this climactic day that eventually comes to an end. Uh, and Christmas came, and it was gone. And as my in-laws were, were packing their vehicle, and they loaded the car the other day, the day after Christmas, all that emotion, all that buildup came tumbling down. Uh, and you would have thought something major, majorly catastrophic was happening. Uh, my, my middle son, he, he cried he wailed. I mean, he wept and wept and wept. He just snot running out all over his face. And uh, you would have thought someone had died. But I understand. No one really wants Christmas to end. Um, but it has. Christmas has ended. And now we wait this long, grueling calendar away ahead of us till the next Christmas, right? So we're longing for the next December. We get a little more time off, a little more time with the family, and we long for that day. But, you know, as for Christians, this anticipation, this, this buildup, this longing for Christmas, it, it serves as a great reminder that we live in this already but not yet reality. Over the past few weeks, we've taken the time to focus on the Advent, that hope has come, which is just a fancy word that describes the, the coming of Christ. And Pastor John has talked about it from several different places in, in the scriptures, beginning in the Old Testament, beginning in creation, and, and, and working its way through, even through last week, ending with the culmination of Christ's birth painting a picture of what God has been doing throughout all of redemptive history to reconcile us back to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this week, I want us to think about it from another perspective. Just as we've been watching Christmas pass and we long for it to come around again next year, the same is true for the, for the true and second advent. The advent of Christ. You see, we, we live, as I said earlier, in this already but not yet tension of the advent of Christ. And it is true that Christ has come 
And he has lived a life that, that you and I can never live. And he's died a death that you and I deserve to die. And he's, he's conquered an enemy that you and I could not conquer. And he's risen from the grave. And he's ascended into heaven. Yet there's still more that everyone on this side of redemptive history is waiting for. So this morning, we, we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews, a letter that, that certainly recognizes this already but not yet tension. Now, now, to bring a little context to our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, this is a chapter that, that deals explicitly with the old covenantal practice of the tabernacle describing in detail the specifics of the temple, the holy place and the, and the most holy place, right? That's separated by the veil, but separated by the curtain. And how the high priest would enter into the holy place. He, he, and, and, and in the holy place, um, there would be constant activity, constant ritual duties being performed there. Yet the most holy place, the most, the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt, only the great high priest would enter into that space once a year. And when he would do it, he would do it with a rope attached to his feet because history has shown, redemptive history has shown, biblical history has shown, when people see God, they die. And so the only way to know that the work of the great high priest was successful is that he actually came back out. <laughs> And so, this text tells us in verse 7, not only and not without the high priest would not go without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And he would do this year after year. Did these sacrifices save them? Did these sacrifices that, that the great high priest would do year after year after year, did it save them? So for, for a millennia, really, the priests were, were there offering their daily sacrifices. And once a year, they would go into the most holy place and they would offer this, this, this specific sacrifice. And it gives them detail of how they should do it, how they should walk through the ceremonial practices. There were literally millions of sacrifices made. And so, if these sacrifices didn't save them, why were they significant? Why were they important? Why did they have to happen? Well, ultimately, to remind them that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So God told them, pick out, pick out your lamb and bring it inside to live with you for five days. Now think about the significance of that. I mean, how many of you have a five-year-old? Hey, can you imagine the bond that would grow between the little lamb that you brought into your home and the five-year-old? Imagine the, the bond that would take place the love that would take place. I mean, this thing is sleeping in your bed. You're feeding it from your table. Sounds much like the pets you have in your own home right now. And this is to remind us it was meant to sting. 
It was meant to sting when the day of atonement came. It was meant to be a reminder of the cost of our sins. Yet Hebrews 9 teaches that Christ is the great high priest who secures an eternal redemption for his people by shedding his own blood. And as a result, Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Furthermore, that, that almost everything under the law is purified with blood. And without, again, the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so this blood of the ceremonial animals ultimately foreshadowed the blood Jesus shed on the cross when he was crucified. So picking up in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit. Read a little bit. Talk a little bit. Picking up in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. That's the temple. He's talking about the temple there. Which are copies of the true things, which is heaven, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Let me pray for us as we begin to dive into this text a bit. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the life that you've given in us in Christ. We thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us in your word. God, I pray right now that, that I might decrease, you might increase. God, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So God, let your word reign true in our heart today. Lord, we ask all that in Jesus' name. First thing I want you to see out of this passage is that if you are in Christ, you have a better advocate before God in heaven. If you are in Christ, you have a better advocate before God in heaven. Verse 24 continues drawing out what has been mentioned in the preceding verses. That Jesus did not enter an earthly tabernacle to offer himself. He, he went to, into the very presence of God. And as soon as he took his seat at the Father's right hand, he began his intercession for us. What is more, he, he was in his newly acquired, uh, newly acquired human body, perfectly sensitized to our humanity by his life and by his death. As such, he is our constant attorney. As the author Hebrews has said earlier in chapter 7 verse 25, he says, because he always lives to intercede for them. To this, Paul would agree in Romans chapter 8 verses 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if no charge can be brought against God's elect, then, then logically it follows that no condemnation can be brought against them either. 
And Paul is summarizing what he has taught earlier in Romans chapter 8, that there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have been set free from Jesus Christ, from the law, which condemns us from our sin. See, a sinless Savior died and bore the condemnation for the sins we committed. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him and vindicated his son. For those in the risen Christ, his victory and vindication, they're ours. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates God, the Father's acceptance of his son's sacrificial payment for the penalty of our sins. And it was sufficient, completely sufficient. So next to God, Jesus now occupies the seat of the highest authority and honor in heaven. Having made perfect atonement, he sat down at the Father's right hand and is interceding for us. He is our heavenly advocate and high priest. He, he continues to secure the benefits of our salvation, for our salvation. He's not condemning us because he has already been condemned for us. He's interceding for us. Listen, when we stumble because of the remaining sin in our life, and you will stumble. I mean, Christmas season is punished, right? I mean, it was just, we were just here. We had all of our family together. And what I know is the more people that occupy your space, the greater possibility of sin. I have learned that. The more people that occupy your little residence that you have, the greater likelihood that you are going to sin. And so when we stumble because of the remaining sin, we don't have to, to wallow in guilt or in self-condemnation. We turn away from that sin and look to Jesus in faith because he is constantly interceding for us before God the Father. Fervently, relentlessly, standing before the Father saying, he's mine. She's mine. And there's the, this, this is the testimony of, of John as well. In John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, it says, My dear children, I write these to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This incredible representation should bring the greatest comfort to our hearts. If we are in Christ, then we have confidence because of our legal standing. We have a true and better representative. However, the author of Hebrews, he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop there. He gives further evidence that Christ is the superior mediator. And not only is Christ a better mediator, but he is, because of his proximity to God, 
but also as a better sin substitute. Which takes us to verse 25 and 26. Text says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Which, which brings me to my next point. If you are in Christ, you have a better sacrifice to atone for your sins. There is a better substitute. There is a better sacrifice for your sins. And here's the point. Unlike the Levitical priest who continually had to offer up sacrifices to atone for their sins and for the sins of the, of the people, the high priest made these annual trips into the holy, the most holy place of the tabernacle. Each time he carried the blood of a fresh animal sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and thus needed no repeating. He is our constant priest. But this is in no way suggests that he perpetually is offering himself And there, there have been some in other faith traditions that, who have ignored the truth of Scripture and have instituted the celebration of the Eucharist, a repeated reenactment uh, here on earth. How, and I would say how utterly, um, how utterly contradictory to this passage. Spits in the face of God's Word in, in, in Hebrews chapter 7. And is misleading. People from this faith tradition need to read this passage. One sacrifice. It's sufficient. It's complete. And the sacrifice was so monumental, so effective, that it could only be offered once for all. His blood was totally sufficient. I think about this. In a rural village lived, once lived a doctor who was noted both for his devotion to his patients and for his devotion to Christ. And after his death, his books were examined and several entries had been written across the, the journal entries in the books, that the bookkeeping portion of his practice that read, uh, that read forgiven, too poor to pay. And unfortunately, his wife was of a different disposition. Insisting that these debts be settled, she filed a suit before the proper court. And when the case was being heard, the judge asked her, Is this your husband's handwriting? In red. And she replied, that it was, then said the judge, not a court in all the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. And Jesus writes in bold crimson letters across our lives, forgiven. Too poor to pay. 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? This is the beauty of Romans chapter 8. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. The sufficiency of Christ's atoning death is the centerpiece of our salvation. You see, understanding and believing and trusting in these things will be foundational for your spiritual development. And I'm telling you if, you, if you can wrap your mind around this, it will, it, will, it will pay dividends in your spiritual development. Because there will be times when you will feel the need to clean yourself up before you can approach the throne of God. For the man who, who failed and looked at pornography this past week, there's a temptation that says, if I, can just, if I can just go the next three weeks and not look at pornography, then God is going to be pleased with me. But you can't clean yourself up. You can't do it. I can't atone for my sins. A divine substitute is necessary. We need a savior. We're all prone to think this way. If I can simply read my Bible every day in 2019, then God will show me favor. He'll, he'll forgive me. If I give a little more this week in the offering bucket, then, then God will, will show me grace and, and he'll, he'll bless me. Satan wants you to think this way. He, he wants you to be good people who externally have everything together, but inwardly are trusting in nothing but yourself. Listen. You can't atone for your sins. A divine substitute is necessary. And we need a Savior. And thank the Lord God sent a Savior. Born in a manger. Humbling himself. The God of the universe. The creator of all things. Of heaven and earth. Humbled himself to have his butt white. Had to have his diaper changed. But that baby didn't stay a baby, did he? He became the great sin substitute on our behalf. Listen, we can't atone for our sins and there's a better sacrifice that if you are in Christ, there's a better sacrifice for your sins. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Which brings me to my next point. If you are in Christ, you have a better hope for the future. If you are in Christ, you have a better hope for the future. In verse 27, the author considers man's looming death and judgment as it, is, as it relates to the work of Christ, as it relates to the work of Jesus. The reason for our appointment with death and judgment takes us back to the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve if they, uh, if they, would, if they would eat from the, from the tree, the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. 
He appointed their death in that moment, in this event, in their disobedience. And in their moment of rebellion, morality entered the human experience. And just as sin entered the world through one man, so death reigned through all mankind. Listen, life is lived one time. And then there's, then there's death and judgment. Just as it was for Adam and Eve. Man will die and then God will judge him. This directly relates to the work of Christ. Who he too was appointed to die once. He died one time. And his death never needed to be repeated. And because he has died once, he will not come again to act as a sacrifice. Rather, he will come to bring final salvation for his people. And this is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope to which the author turns in verse 28. Where he says that the word here, waiting, in verse 28, points to the, to the fact that believers should be longing for Christ's return. We who are alive should be constantly and repeatedly anticipating his second coming. Those who are saved and share in the hope of Christ's return are safe. Even though our earthly struggles and our hardships still pervade our lives, pervade in our lives, Christ, Christians, can and must hold to the hope that we are eternally secure in Christ right now. Again, this is, this is part of the already but not yet tension of the author, that the author of Hebrews is constantly highlighting throughout this letter. If we are resting in Christ alone and not on our own righteousness, not on our own self-perceived righteousness... We are absolutely saved right now. And that's good news. But Jesus is coming again, coming again to, to complete our salvation experience. We are waiting on the consummation of Christmas. We are waiting on the second advent. Our salvation is past, present, and a future salvation. It is past in the sense that... that Christ accomplished by his blood a long, a long time ago. It happened a long time ago. And it is present in the sense that, that we are saved and united with Christ right now. And he is interceding for us on our behalf. And it is future in the sense that we will be saved out of this broken world and into eternal communion. Where peace and freedom from sin Whenever Christ returns. As I thought about this passage the last two weeks. And as my family finished up the Advent devotional that my wife uh, wrote. I, I was deeply encouraged by what she said on the final day. Is it okay to quit my wife, I guess? This is what she said in the final Ad, Advent devotion from December 24th. It says, although Christ rules as king in the hearts of those 
who make up his church, things are still not as they should be in the world. The snake is still lying and convincing people God, God's word isn't true. There is still pain, sadness, sickness, and death. People still sin and don't reflect God's glory perfectly. Even those who are part of the church. But it won't be like this forever. King Jesus is coming back to earth to get rid of the lying snake and the sin for good. As King Jesus will make everything new and right on earth. He will establish a new city made up of all the people who have trusted in him alone for their savior, to be their savior. This city will be perfectly safe, clean, and beautiful because God will live there. There will be no tears, no pain, or death in the city. Here there will be no sun because God's glory will be the light. And there will be no temple because Jesus is the temple who makes it possible for God to dwell with his people. In this city, the children of God will finally have the glory of God. They will radiate it perfectly. That all may see and worship King Jesus forevermore. The gospel truth should infuse us with tremendous hope. Regardless of our successes or failures and our accomplishments or our lack thereof, if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he will surely come back to us, bringing the final installment of our great salvation. The God, this is God's grand impetus for Christian living. It's what drives us to live an obedient life. To, to tell us over and over that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. What else can believing hearts do except love him in return and gladly obey him? So we wait eagerly. In the present, we rejoice in the past, and we anticipate the new heaven and the new, and we, the new heaven and the new earth, the new restored earth in the future. Listen, every generation of Christian has been waiting for the coming kingdom. Abraham was waiting for the coming kingdom. And this is true for our generation as well. So as long as we are living, we are waiting for the advent. We are waiting for the second coming of Christ. We must do so eagerly. Let's pray.